Welcome to the Chemical Sensitivity Podcast. It's a podcast that amplifies the voices of people with MCS and highlights emerging research about the illness. In this episode, I'm speaking with Michelle Dumont. Michelle is a queer Métis two-spirited artist who has multiple chemical sensitivity. He currently resides in Thunder Bay in Northern Ontario. A lot of his art involves what he calls faux taxidermy. He makes beautiful, colorful animal objects. Bears are one of his favorites, with found taxidermy and covers them over with discarded vintage tile, making them into fabulous mosaic pieces. Michelle also works with wearable art using packing tape, mylar, cellophane, and LED lights. His work has been exhibited at galleries across Canada. In our conversation, Michelle speaks about how he chooses materials that are safer for him as a person with MCS, and that sometimes he's been judged for his choices. He also talks about the challenges of exhibiting his art as someone with MCS, and how he draws on his indigenous Métis roots, and his mother's experiences as a survivor of the Indian residential school system in his creative practices. For decades, the Canadian government and a number of churches removed and separated Indigenous children from their families and communities, forcing them to attend residential schools. Most of the 139 Indian residential schools stopped operating by the mid-1970s, but the last federally run school closed in the late 1990s. In the past couple of years, the remains of hundreds of children have been found on the sites of former Indian residential schools. Since part of our conversation deals with traumatic memories of past abuse, if you're a survivor of the Indian residential school system, you can call the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line. The number is 1-866-925-4419. That's 1-866-925-4419. And thank you for listening. Well, Michelle Dumont, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hi there. Well, thank you for having me, Aaron. Yeah, it's really amazing. I've really been looking forward to talking with you, and I've been exploring your artwork and some of your writing, and uh, so it's it's amazing to have a chance to talk with you. So folks will have heard me read the bio that you shared, but would you like to let people know a little bit about yourself? Well, um, so my name is Michelle Dumont. I'm a queer, Métis, two-spirited, disabled artist from Thunder Bay, Ontario. So from uh, the Robinson Superior Treaty, I am a Ojibwe and Métis, uh, sorry, French. Um, and so uh, I became a multiple chemical sensitive about eight years ago. And uh, I had to adapt my uh, artistic medium to deal with uh, non-toxic materials or I wouldn't have a career. Right, I hear you. And, and I really want to invite you to share more about that. And uh, and thank you for introducing yourself. And you've talked about multiple identities. And I wanted to ask just off the top, are there any of your multiple identities that you identify with the most? Or do they? does it depend on the situation or the day? And how do they come together? Like either do they do they come together in your artwork? Well, I mean, the intersections, you know, are, are sort of ever present, right? And so, and, um, and, and realistically, you know, it's because of those intersections that I have appealed to more people. Like, when I realized that, um, to get personal, I became more universal. Um, that was something I, I had to, like, come to understand. And then, um, so everything, you know, my, all my identities, you know, they factor into everything I, I work with. So um, 
my chemical sensitivity, you know, is paramount in my materials. And it is, you know, what I explore, you know, non-toxic materials that I can breathe with low VOCs, right? And so uh, when I'm making dresses for runway collections, you know, I'm making it of materials that are not going to give me a headache, right, or make me dizzy. Um, and then when I'm making sculpture uh, or installation art, it's, you know, exploring, you know, um, traditionally, you know, there are certain, you know, materials that, you know, considered for fine art, right? You know, oil paints and, you know, like things like this. And of course I have, I am limited, but I'm also freed of, you know, certain, you know, conventions of what is, you know, fine art. And, and luckily, you know, the rest of the world is sort of, you know, coming to terms with that, that, you know, craft can be, you know, level to the level of art and fine art. And so I've been, you know, playing with, uh, you know, ceramics in the ceramic studio when I get the chance and uh, just having fun, you know, and, and realistically speaking, we have had this history of, you know, art supplies that are non-toxic for children. Yes, you want some permanence, you know, but wh wh why does toxicity have to deem its profession, that it's professional? And so, um yeah, I mean, I, I take unconventional materials and I turn them into costumes and I turn them into installation art. Yeah, and I want to talk more about the materials and the choices and the challenges and the reception. Most people will be listening to you, uh, listening to you as opposed to seeing you. Could you talk a little bit about the work that you do? You mentioned you, you do fashion design. Um, I'm really interested in, in hearing you talk about your what you call faux taxidermy and, and how the Métis and First Nations uh, influences your work. What are the major kind of types of art that you, that you do, that you create? So a few years ago, I was really fortunate to have stumbled into a local antique store and, and find some vintage taxidermy forms. Um, the owner of the antique store, uh, when I told him that I would love to see, I would love to buy them, he had 25 more animals in the basement and they were all taxidermy forms from the 1980s. So they were polyurethane, but most of them had outgassed. And that was extremely important that this material was vintage, that it was not fresh polyurethane because fresh polyurethane can be, you know, really aromatic still. It can be sort of like a vinyl, right? And, uh, and I also had to learn about, you know, having the right adhesives that would adhere ceramic to, you know, polyurethane. And fortunately, I, you know, stumbled upon a hot glue that I could use. I mean, some hot glues are stronger than others and, you know, have a, a really bad odor. And so uh, the the tech, like I, I told him if he gave me a deal, I would make a career out of it. And so he's been following my career as I get, you know, nominated for certain awards across the country and I exhibit outside of the country now. But I, so I, what I do is I, I carve ceramic tile. And so I, I've been playing with, you know, mosaics for years. And I used to use really harsh adhesives like silicone glues. And I would, you know, get massive headaches um, about, starting about eight, nine years ago. And there were times when I was using um, a gas mask while I was, you know, protecting myself from the silicone glue, not realizing I was becoming a multiple chemical sensitive. And so that 
process of becoming, you know, a multiple chemical sensitive, I had to retreat from, you know, established, you know, patterns that I had in my process and in, in my work. And so, um, you know, lo- learning for su- learning to find substitutes, right? And then some some of the polyurethane, you know, taxidermy forms, um, even after forty years, they still have an odor. Like I, I, I tried to have the whole collection inside the house uh, before they were, you know, uh, decorated with, uh, you know, tile and with uh, grout. And I was starting to get massive headaches, and I'm like, oh. I, these can't be inside the house, so I had to put them outside. And it was trial and error if I brought one or two into the house that I could work on and I could tolerate, you know, their presence. But then I found that certain poly, uh, some polyurethanes or the, the, the foams were still supple and they were still very odorific. Mm-hmm. And I realized, okay, I can only work with them, you know, in a well-ventilated area. Mm-hmm. It was through trial and error that I realized that as soon as I started covering them with, you know, carved tile and with, mm-hmm. you know, grout, I was locking in the scent. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I started working like, you know, two thirds or like uh, halfway through the piece, I would be able to tolerate it inside my house. Right. And so um, I know it, it was it's been trial and error to work with Got this it. medium. But the older the taxidermy form, like on eBay, the, the better it is for me to, you know, right. breathe in. Uh, I keep them, you know, all still out in the garage. You you found this collection of taxidermy animals. You brought them home and you started realizing they're toxic. And then you covered them over with grout and tile. Why did you do this? Uh, so these forms are the, the naked forms that you would have. You would, the taxidermist, the traditional taxidermist would buy the form. They would pin the fur onto the form and stretch it out. And then they would uh, heat it under a heat lamp to sort of shrink wrap it onto the, 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 the form. What I realized I was a mosaicist and I, I really wanted to make, you know, instead of just like a two dimensional flat surface, which I have done and many of the mosaicists do, I wanted to do something three dimensional. And, and really, I am Bear Clan, right? So I'm Ojibwe, and uh, Bear Clan is uh, a protector clan. And so I've been taking in, you know, teenagers for years, you know, my son, I, I adopted him, you know, kept him in the family, He was my second cousin. And so I've always, you know, did this privately in my own my own personal life was, you know, get teenagers back home to their, you know, parents and stuff. Right. Um, and so seeing these taxidermy forms and these animals and the, it, it just, it was limitless. Like I had five bears in the collection and some deer and I had even had a beaver form and I knew that it, it, it spoke to me because of the, the, the native clan system, you know, for uh, how we we identify ourselves spiritually. And so uh, I knew that I could tell a story. And and I come from an oral tradition. And so telling a story in tile, um, you know, was the next step. So Mm -hmm. these animals became stories onto themselves, right? And so Mm -hmm. my first bear was a two-spirited rainbow bear. So the, the intersections of my queer you know, bareness, you know, in the gay community. And then, you know, being, you know, indigenous and bare clan, right? It's sort of, it, it married the two so well. And so each piece, like one uh, deer is a dancing doe. 
and it's it's a jingle dress deer with a, a stylized jingles on the body of the the doe, and it's to honor the 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 women in my family who could never wear a jingle dress. You know that was stripped to them, that identity was stripped to that of them by Indian day school and residential school, and so. I have a chance to tell a story and I'm able to honor, you know, my, my intersections uh, and tell a story in tile mm-hmm. on my animals. And so you talk about your process of learning as someone who has chemical sensitivity, that the traditional and traditional is probably not the right word, but maybe the conventional materials that a lot of other artists work with don't work with you because of your illness you're not able to work with these so you've had this process of discovering and you write that you went sort of back to your indigenous roots if i'm not wrong right to use how would you describe it natural materials or products that are um that first nations artists used to use is is that something you've experimented with so I guess I, I should, you know, say that, you know, right now there's a, this resurgence of tide hanning and I really want to go to a tide hanning camp because they're outdoors, but I'm going to have to stay away from the fire. I have to stay away from the smoke. I'm going to have to, you know, protect myself from the smudging, but I want to be a part of that experience. And so luckily my local community, they know me. And so I'll be able to stand six feet away and still be able to talk and learn. But, you know, some of the, the experiences in, in making deer hide um, is very odorific and I can't be around, right? Like the, the smoke will, you know, give me too much of a headache. Um, but so what I've done uh, when I can is to use materials like birch bark and we call it wigwas, right, in Ojibwe. And when I can, I can strip wigwas off a tree, keep the tree, you know, healthy and just take off some outer layers of bark. And then I can introduce that into, you know, collage or in, into my work. And it's, you know, getting that traditional, you know, material, but finding that there's non-toxicity even within the, the indigenous world, right? And in the natural world, eventually I would love to be, you know, a land artist and I would love to be able to make mounds of dirt and, you know, piles of stones and, you know, a mark that can erode with time. However, I mean, I have a bad back as well. And so um, there's only, I'm limited to what I can do in my hands, you know, daily, because I also say, suffer from chronic pain and so um, that also means I work with a lightweight material like packing tape and cellophane um, my mother my, my Ojibwe mother used to make all these paper flowers and plastic flowers for weddings you know all the family weddings my mother and my sister and I when we were children would be making all these Kleenex flowers for all the you know cars in the wedding party and I have that sort of, you know, tradition of, you know, keeping my hands busy, right? And and right now I'm just making dresses out of this lightweight cellophane and packing tape that has a low toxicity to it. It's adhesive. And I, like I first saw it on Pinterest about eight years ago or seven years ago, and it was this Halloween packing tape ghost. You know, I just went, oh, packing tape. How like you know like and I saw the transparency I saw a light being shot through it you know ghost at Halloween and I thought okay I can do that so I did it 
I found packing tape that I could breathe in. It was fine. And I played with cellophane. Of course, I had this love of cellophane from when I was a little boy. Normally, you would get, you know, our pastry packages that were cardboard. And then you'd have a little cellophane window. And I used to think that was magical looking into the pastry. You didn't have these big plastic containers that we now currently have that are littering the planet, right? And I try to incorporate some of that, you know, reused, you know, plastics into my process now. So I took packing tape and cellophane and I started playing with it. And I realized that you can make textile out of it, that with enough layers, you can make a leather. And then once you make a textile leather, you can do anything out of it. And with that transparency, you can shoot light through it. And that just, you know, opened up, you know, so many possibilities. And I just, you know, went with it. And now, you know, I'm on one of the biggest runways in the country (laughs) with all these international uh, indigenous designers from, you know, New Zealand, Greenland, you know, South America. It's just so amazing. Yeah. And the, the cellophane fashion design also is influenced um, from your First Nations origins and queer identity. Oh, definitely. It's 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 bright and shiny. <laughs> but then I've also played with making uh, Ojibwe flower prints, right? Like the uh, woodland flower print uh, petals. And I've used reflective paper that had, um, you know, millions of glass beads on top of it. And then I put a cellophane, you know, layer on top of it to, to make it flash um, different colors. And so I play with materials that are frequently found at estate sales and auctions, you know, that... Um, that are going to be, you know, I find them in secondhand stores, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, frequently things that have off-gassed for a long period of mm-hmm. time are like perfect fodder for my, you know, installation art or for my creativity. Yeah, so I'm, that... I'm always combing the antique stores and, mm-hmm. you know, the secondhand thrift shops. Yes, that makes sense. I hear you. And, you know, you I wonder if, you know, because you're quite vocal about your experiences with chemical sensitivity, um, is that something that you're intentional about? Is is your intention to counter ableism? And you told me in an earlier discussion, if you admire my artwork, you can't divorce that from my disability. Or maybe you wrote that, I'm not sure. So how do you view your, how do you view those things? There was... um sort of a attitude to, you know, uh, dismiss, you know, my disability and just focus on the art. And I, you know, found that very grating because my artwork is informed by my disability. It You can't, you know, have one without the other. I, I frequently discuss, you know, and I'm very public about, you know, my trials and tribulations in traveling. I mean, traveling with MCS, there's so many people who have MCS who refuse to, you know, travel because trying to find safe harbor in other cities is extremely difficult, as you well know, I'm sure. You're sought after. Galleries want to exhibit your work. You're being invited all over the place. And yet, I'm hearing you saying that that's actually pretty challenging for you with 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 MCS, right? To travel, to get on a plane, to find hotels. And I can just imagine opening reception, you know, being in a crowded space with all the fragrances, it can be, must be really challenging. I'm lucky that that art galleries are big open spaces. That helps. When rooms are really small and then when there's a lot of perfume on an opening night, yes, that's difficult. So, I mean, I've had various experiences, right? I mean, most of the 
the places I, I go to, like they'll inform me if there's going to be smudging, then I can just step out, wait for it to happen, and then come back, you know, five, ten minutes later. Uh, Michelle, you talked about, you know, having to adapt the materials you work with to make it safe for yourself. You also have written about that you've encountered some judgment from galleries, critics, other artists, the public. What kind of judgment have you faced and how have you dealt with that? I think a disability can sometimes be weaponized against you. And so if you if you say you have, you know, you need these accommodations and you have these, you know, difficulties, um, there's there are times when, you know, gallerists and curators can say, well, we can have someone else step in your shoes, right? And so there's always that fear. I had one curator, you know, tell me that I should probably just leave the event, you know, because of the smudging. And I just said, no, I need to, you know, just step out for five, 10 minutes. And then when it's done, I have, I can come back in. There are times when commerce meets art and commerce can sometimes trump, you know, the artist. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are times when accommodation is merely lip service and there are times when galleries really want to try but then you have to educate you know what does accommodation for someone who has mcs really mean right it means a safe accommodation it means a safety plan you know like if i get a toxic exposure all of a sudden i need to know where the exits are so i can get some fresh air right and so there are things that galleries can do better right right and it's also, you know, the, the talking about the products, right? Like when people evaluate your work or judge your work, you've, I think you've noted can sometimes be viewed as lesser value or less prestigious, less worthy of, of being displayed because did you say that they think you're using children's materials? Realistically speaking, that, that, that's an older group of curators and gallerists in this country who still have this, you know, sort of antiquated idea of what fine art is, you know, sculpture, painting, you know, drawing. There's like, you know, that's it. Thankfully, there's a younger breed of curator who understands multimedia, who understands fine art, disability arts, I have to say, has come a long way in our country. More curators are getting educated about disability art. And so when you're evaluating, you know, a person's work who say came out of a, an institution and they work with non-traditional materials. They get work with materials that were brought to them to the hospital or whatever it was. Then you get this fantastic, you know, textile art. You get this fantastic original thing. And so I think the intersection of, of art and disability, you factor in here. I work with such a lightweight material. I work with a non-toxic material. And then I factioned light installations and I have made a runway collection that's now international. And and so it's it's wonderful to be embraced and hopefully just it'll happen more and more often that we open our minds up to what is beautiful. And safe, right? And safe for more people. That's good to yes. hear. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, going back to when you, your early days as, as an artist, um, did you always have a, uh, an interest in the connection between your creative expression and the environment? Uh, on, I was discovered on your Instagram, uh, you write about standing on the beach, uh, your first art show where you were making a statement about medical waste showing up on New York State beaches. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about that? Have you always had an interest in the environment and even before you had MCS? 
the environmental medical waste that was washing up on New York bases, like I guess it was a barge that had tipped over. And so all these needles, etc., had washed up on New York beaches. I remember that story like it was yesterday. And I thought a day at the beach should not be, you shouldn't be worried about syringe pokes. I took this vinyl beach ball and I had to play with adhesives. That was an, that was an essay in adhesives because strong adhesives for the hard plastic plunger for the syringe needle would eat through the vinyl. And so I had to figure out what adhesives would work. I was working with all these toxic materials at that time. I was trying and not very well. I was probably had, you know, um, low tolerance for toxicity even then, like, you know, years before it really presented itself. And so I had put an extra strip of double vinyl, the vinyl sided tape, which I will probably never be able to work with now. And then, uh, and, and then I glued oh, some contact cement or something onto each, you know, double sided vinyl tape because I was, the glues were eating through the vinyls. So I made them like a porcupine with these ridges of needles, you know, sticking out of the ball. There was some question of whether or not it was safe enough to have. So I didn't put the syringes on. I just put the plungers onto the ball. These were from like a veterinarian clinic. And I told people it's only going to be dangerous to your dogs or your cats. And so, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess I have been interested in, in the environment, as you mm-hmm. put, put it. It's, you know, we have to live here. And I, I worked with a plastics residency in Banff just this last summer. And it was a virtual residency with um, scientists from around the, the world and uh, and artists. And it was eye-opening. Um, I learned about plastic nurdles, you know, in the lower Great Lakes uh, from a, a scientist who was studying it. Um, and then, you know, levels of, you know, microplastics, et cetera. And so I live on Lake Superior, which is one of the cleanest lakes, but we do have one nurdle site on the whole lake. And that's from a train car that went into the lake. And there's still, you know, 10 years later, still, you can still find the plastic nurdles, which are dangerous to sea animals, et cetera. And so I'm learning to, you know, and, and the thing is with, with artists, we, we can't avoid certain materials like like paints, like paints behind me, they're, they're toxic. The thing is, we can't avoid it. However, we can treat our materials like precious materials, right? And so we can reuse, we can recycle. I'm learning to incorporate, I, but I always have done this. I've always have reused previous costumes and, and used the components to build another costume. And then I was, what I'm really doing is taking a single-use plastic and I'm reusing it again and again, mm-hmm. right? So my performers, you know, wear their, their outfits again and again. But I'm also learning not to uh, treat it with, like, a precious material that I'm not going to waste it. And as artists, we have to be cognizant of our material and its place in, you know, the future. Like, is it going to be on the planet forever? I wanted just to circle back to an art project that you made in which you made MCS really visible to the public, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? It's a project about um, a shape of a body and your showing like how the nervous system works was that around mcs can you talk us through a little bit about that project so that was my chronic pain chart and so my invisible disabled man it can sort of deal with you know multiple chemicals, chemical sensitivity because it deals with invisible disabilities right and so my chronic pain chart i spent years circling where it hurts on the doctor's charge for myriad many specialists and many doctors who i've seen over the last 25 years of my my injury and so i decided that I was going to, you know, celebrate invisible disability by making a see-through 
three-dimensional man. And in that, I did nerve endings and read mylar, like from balloons from Party City. And I threaded them through the whole body. So really, invisible disabilities, people deal with them all the, all the time. And, and my chronic pain and my MCS, you don't necessarily see that. However, it's there. It's there when I have to sit down. It's there when I'm getting a splitting headache and I have to run outside to get fresh air. I wanted to talk about two other specific art pieces or projects that you've created. Uh, the first is um, a traditional button blanket coat made with rainbow colors. It's really beautiful. What is the place of pearl buttons in Indigenous culture? And you've put your own spin on that, right, in this design. Can you describe this project for us? Well, firstly, I was I was gifted the, the this uh, vintage button collection from uh, a dear friend's mother who was a seamstress. And she spent her years making clothes for her family and for the community, right, and taking in mending and making things. And so she had had this collection for 60 years. And so there were buttons from World War One, but she stored them in her laundry room in pickle jars. <laughs> and so all these beautiful vintage buttons from World War One to the 80s, all were extremely scented, not just of the pickle, but of the vinegar. It was the laundry room and they were all super sweet smelling. So I was trying to figure out ways I could reuse them. I told her if she gave me her collection, I would use it in art. I would reuse them. They would find another their home instead of just being thrown out no one in her family wanted them and i'm like i will use them you know and i put my hand up i'm like please give them to me adele then i found out how she had stored them and so that meant i had to like figure out you know coffee grounds i had to try to figure out you know charcoal what would sort of leach the scent out and so that sent me to the groups on facebook and the internet like how can i fix these things and what it was i took some aquarium filters some charcoal from aquarium i bought out all the the charcoal aquarium filters in our local city <laughs> and I, I put them inside each jar that worked for a few months but only it knocked it down only so much but then eventually last spring i put them out on these big cardboard flats in the sun uv rays are gonna do the job <laughs> and so i baked them for several weeks flipping them we had such a dry summer spring last year so i was able to flip the buttons and, and I, my backyard was full of buttons <laughs> and people would come over and I'm like, is that a button? I'm like, yeah, those are buttons. <laughs> and so some of the buttons were like leather and the, the sun really damaged them. And I'm like, oops, I didn't know they made leather buttons. Just preparing the wonderful gift to make it so I could handle them. You know, I had to bake them with UV rays. However, UV rays do the trick. What is the meaning of the button blanket in First Nations culture? Because that's what you're building so, on, I mean, right? In your work, yeah? Right. And that's more of a West Coast thing. And and the thing is, I, I decided that I was going to honor that tradition by, you know, reusing her buttons. Right. And so I, I made a Métis sash with a rainbow sort of motif, like the rainbow colors. And then I sort of like a Christie Belcourt, uh, Belcourt, you know, met shift design with the dots paintings that she does, like with the florals and vines. I decided that the mother of pearl buttons that are vintage and beautiful and they come in baby size buttons and they go all the way to these big ornate buttons. I, I know I now belong to all these button groups online and I've learned so much. I found this vintage men's flight coat. So it was a pilot's Air Canada coat that I, the first day the after the lockdown last year, um, the thrift stores were open. I went in, found a jacket that fit me and I decided to decorate it with all these beautiful buttons. And so they're finding a new life. And 
And the thing is, I reusing these materials, people, they are collected. You can find them in every thrift store across the country. And so instead of just having them thrown out, there's, there's ways to reuse them, right? And upcycle your garments. And, and that, that one post was, you know, well received on online because it, it's a beautiful use of upcycling. Yeah. So you're using products. It was, it sounds like a bit of a process to make them manageable for you. And the end product is, um, the coat, as you describe, with a sash, multicolored. Is there a, a an LGBTQ plus rainbow woven into it? The rainbow sash is made out of the rainbow colors, and so I had purple buttons alongside blue, you know, green, and so I used the the rainbow into the Métis sash, and it just it felt right for that piece because it, it personifies who I am. I incorporate symbols that were used to for assimilation. Um, but sometimes I, you know, I decolonize some of these materials. And, and I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the project you made in connection to First Nations residential schools. You made a collage using a photograph. Do you want to talk a little bit about that project? One of the photos I grew up with was my mother's Indian day school photo from 1955. She's like five or six years old in it. And my aunt and my other aunts and uncle are in this one room classroom from 1955 that was on the Lake Helen uh, Indian Reserve here just outside of Thunder Bay. We took the 1955 photograph and we sent it off to a printer who had iron oxide ink. And so that iron oxide ink, the photograph was transferred onto this wax paper that had iron oxide ink. And then I rolled out porcelain tile, porcelain clay, made it into tile. We pre-baked it. And then we then took the decal. I wiped it onto the ceramic tile pieces. And then we cooked that on with a glaze. So I had the whole photograph in segments and tiles and ceramic tiles in the kiln. And so what came out was a beautiful recreation of the classroom photo. And in the classroom photo, sadly, all their hair is cut off. There's no one smiling. The process of killing the Indian and the child was at place in these schools, in the day schools and the residential schools. That is why I speak really good English. Uh, my mother beat English into my sister and I, something she learned at school. You know, that English was paramount, that we couldn't sound Ojibwe like, like she spoke. We couldn't, you know, she barely tolerated French. That legacy of intergenerational trauma, I, I really wanted to explore. I was given the opportunity just before the pandemic to have a performance and break that tile and then to read out the names. What I chose to do was read out the names of each children because I still have these connections to the families in that photograph because I come from a small town and I knew these people's families. And I talked to the elders who were in this school with my mother and they gave me all the names of everyone. I then read out the names as I struck a hammer and broke each tile. During the pandemic, I had the time and the peace and place to be able to heal the tile and put it back together with the Japanese art of kintsugi and take a gold adhesive and finding gold adhesive. That took months to find a non-toxic gold adhesive that I could work. And, and so I used a gold pigment with Mod Podge because it's a white glue. Uh, it worked. It did the trick. It doesn't, like it was already adhered with hot glue, like all the pieces put back together. And, and really what I needed to show was the beauty and the broken, that these families still transmitted culture despite of what had happened to them, that they, they transmitted what they could. And so there's a certain degree of resiliency. When I put that photo on Facebook after my mother had passed, 
several descendants of that school system recognize their family members, their their mothers or their grandfathers in that image. It was fascinating. One of the local artists here, she's a remarkable artist. Her name's Cree Stevens. She's from my mother's reserve. Her father was sitting behind my mother in the classroom photo. She told me she had previously had never seen a childhood photo of her father before the age of 22. And so it was a gift to see her father as a child. The comments, some of them were very bittersweet because the grandchildren and children knew of the abuse that happened. They understood intergenerational trauma. What my sister and I had uh, experienced with our mother was not isolated. That was a kind of a healing you know, thing to be able to understand we're not alone, that, you know, these are shared experiences. To become stronger and heal from it was they understood that what I was doing was, you know, right. That piece, you know, along with the summer in Kamloops and the discovery of, you know, children's bodies being buried, you know, unceremoniously in unmarked graves across the country. We're finding that in schoolyards now. I started making my regalia bear, which is a protector bear. And he was always going to be a protector bear. But then I realized last summer when I was coming to choose his coat that he needed to be orange and he needed to reflect the Every Child Matters movement. And so um, I had people pilgrimaging to my garage studio from all over the province to see the process as I was building it. I was really honored that people felt comfortable in my open air garage to come and see my work. It's currently in Winnipeg, you know, uh, with my solo show and, and it'll be in a Thunder Bay uh, show this summer, which will be nice. And I wanted to just perhaps ask one more question. You know, you talked about your photograph and collage work bringing people together uh, around uh, survivors of intergenerational trauma and the Indian residential school system. And I think I heard you say making people feel less alone. And I wanted to ask, you know, Michelle, in your own experiences as an artist with multiple chemical sensitivity, do you feel alone or do you feel connected to others? Because sometimes we, with invisible illness, we can feel alone, right? And you talked about some of the challenges you face of just making and showing it can be really tough. Do you feel alone or do you feel supported by others? Are there, are there others in your artistic community who get it? We find a way. And I don't feel alone because of these internet groups that can be really great resources. I have an Austin Air filter and... It has saved my life and my career. It's helped me work, you know, with more things in my life. Uh, and, and the thing is, I need to have materials. Like, there are some people with MCS who keep stripped of everything in their home because they have to limit everything. My air purifiers allow me to have more of a bit of a burden around because I, my materials, like I can even handle um, acrylic paint if it's sealed up really well, <laughs> which you know, it's surprising that I can do that because at one time I couldn't, but now with the, the a good filter system in my house, I can tolerate certain mediums. Michelle, thank you so much for sharing everything you've shared. I think a lot of artists probably come to a point if they have chemical sensitivity where they may question, is this something I can pursue? And I think some folks will probably benefit a lot hearing from you and just learning about how resourceful you've been, some of the things you do to, to make it work for you. And also we recognize that it, it's not easy. So I appreciate everything you do. And again, thanks so much for taking time to speak on the podcast. It was my pleasure, Aaron. Thank you so much for inviting me. I know what works for me doesn't necessarily mean it's universal for other people. It's trial and error, right? We learn as we go. One thing about the pandemic 
it forced a lot of society to adapt and to understand disabilities. And I hope there's going to be more understanding about MCS in the future. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Chemical Sensitivity Podcast. And thank you very much to Michel Dumont for joining me. The podcast is produced by me, Aaron Goodman, and Danny Penaloza. To learn more about the podcast and to hear more episodes, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review and follow the podcast on social media. Just search for the Chemical Sensitivity Podcast or Podcasting MCS. Get in touch. Email me at info at chemicalsensitivitypodcast.org. I'll definitely respond. And thanks so much for listening.